We are like four months into our Acts series, and I don't know about you, but I feel like we're just getting started. Like, I was so nervous about doing a year-long series in the same book of the Bible, but the further we get into it, the more I feel like, man, we are just getting going. And two weeks ago, our college and community pastor, Gage Henry, brought a word about the conversion of the Apostle Paul that is so central to everything we're talking about in this series. If you missed it, you got to go back two weeks ago and make sure you hear it. But you also got to go back to understand this one, because I'm going to be hitting on the back half of the passage that he preached two weeks ago. And straight out of the passage I'm preaching today, I want to give you the sermon ahead of time. This sermon, straight out of Acts chapter 9, verse 31, is called Living in Fear and Courage. Living in Fear and Courage. Look at somebody next to you say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Fear not. I want to teach you today from the scriptures how to root your life in a fear that obliterates other fears. Why are y'all turning in your Bible? We haven't done a Bible drill yet. Are y'all all new? Welcome. Welcome to churches right after this. You can learn more about our church. Clearly, you've never been here. We lift our Bible before we open our Bible. Y'all calm down. Jeez. We're going we're gonna to get there, but I want to talk to you about this word fear and this word courage because They seem like opposites, but they're back to back in their description of the early church. And that's because the fear that is talked about in Acts chapter 9 is not the type of fear that God speaks against 365 times in the scriptures. You guys know the Bible has a fear not for every day of the year. And so why would I tell you to live in fear and courage when the Bible is clearly telling you to not be afraid. Because the fear that I'm talking about is not the fear of a circumstance or an opinion or an outcome. It's called the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is the only fear in your life that will deliver all of your, deliver you from your fear of anything and everything else. For a generation and more than a younger generation, a church that is bombarded with attacks against the life of the mind. Today I want to preach what Saul, encur- what Saul, Paul encouraged Timothy with in 2 Timothy when he said, we have not been given a spirit of fear to stay back in a timid place. But the spirit God gives us is one of power, love, and a sound mind. When you become a believer in Jesus and you receive the Spirit of God, the number one way your transformation into this new state of becoming like Jesus, the number one way you cross over into that state is through the renewing of your mind. The New Testament teaches this over and over and over again. And if what it means to be filled with the Spirit is to have a sound mind that is clear and set on the things of God, then don't you think the attack of the enemy, I would say the main attack of the enemy on your life would have something to do with the battle that wages between your ears in your own mind. We have people today who feel a million miles away from where God is and it's all in their head. We have people who feel all alone. We have people who are thinking about taking their life. We have people who are projecting negative outcomes constantly into the future. We have minds that have come under attack and have paralyzed not just our obedience to God, but our joy in life. And I want to preach today to people who are anxious, to people who are maybe in a transition in life and you're freaking out about what's coming next because what happened previously was fully known and controllable, but now it feels like you're stepping into the unknown. In fact, I know that a lot of people graduated this weekend and I always forget about the August graduation. If you graduated yesterday, would you just raise your hand right now so we can see where you guys are at? Congratulations, bro. So excited for you. Always forget about my August graduates. We love y'all. That's a scary moment though. 
Because everything that you've been in is slipping away and everything you're headed into is unknown. And there's a paralyzation that comes when you have all of these circumstances that you can't really control. And the temptation is to get stuck within the noose of fear and the sound mind that I believe God wants to give, not just us as individuals, but our entire church this year is a mind that's governed by peace. The mind of the spirit is governed by life and peace. And the only way you're going to get peace in your life on a daily basis as a Christian is if you learn to combine the fear of the Lord with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. I want to show you this in the scriptures. And now you can get your Bible out. If you brought your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up all over the 11 a.m. service. Keep it up if you're excited about school starting. Like legitimately, there's excitement in your spirit about this. If you just put your Bible down, what is wrong with you? You really like 98 degree weather outside? Turn with me to Acts chapter nine. I'm, I'm so ready for school to start. I'm so ready for fall. I'm so ready for football. I'm so ready to drop both of my older daughters off before 7.50 a.m. Any parents in the room like, yes, so excited for school to start this year. Acts chapter nine, we're gonna pick up on the back half of verse 19 where Gage left off last week. And we're gonna read about the state of the church after the apostle Paul was converted. Remember, they called him Saul before his conversion. And that's what he's gonna be called in this passage. Acts chapter nine, verse 19, if you're there, say I'm there. The word says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Bible's so cool. Let's just take in what we just read for a second. If you go back up to the beginning of it in your Bible and read to the end of verse 25 and peek at verse 26 where it says, when he came to Jerusalem, I just want you to capture this in your mind. That little section I just read took place over the course of three years. So as I just read it, it feels like three weeks, maybe three months at best. But you need to understand some of the things in the book of Acts that Luke just glosses over took years of development to actually come to be. The reason why I know it took three years is because Paul wrote about this time in Damascus in Galatians chapter one. And he says, for three years, I was in Damascus and withdrawing to the desert of Arabia. Why is that significant? Because when Paul was converted, he did not go straight to Jerusalem and join up with the apostles and go, hey, I know you guys got a good thing going, but you just got the MVP on your team. And so I know I was trying to kill you guys before. Sorry about that. But I'm here now and I'm ready to contribute. No, there was a three-year period of massive preparation and sanctification that needed to happen in Paul's life to become the leader in the early church that he would be. And yes, he was ministering and debating and preaching in the synagogue, but make no mistake about it. He was spending a lot more time in the desert becoming more like Jesus. It should strike you that the exact same amount of time the disciples spent with Jesus on earth is the amount of time Paul spent in the desert being developed. And even though he's brilliant, the student of Gamaliel, 
He knows his stuff. He's got to be pruned. He's got to allow the desert to form him before he goes and takes on his full role as a leader in the church. And there's rumors about him being spread among the Jews in Damascus of like, isn't this the guy who came here to arrest these people and was like working against this name? Now he's preaching in this name? What in the world is he doing? And yet Saul is so good at debating them that their only conclusion for what they can do to beat him is to kill him. Like, you know you've got somebody cornered when it's like, we can't stand across the table from him. Let's just arrange a secret killing of him so that he will ultimately be quiet. Three years of time in the desert and time ministering in Damascus have passed, and now it's time for Paul to go to Jerusalem. Let's read what happens in verse 26. It says, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. A couple of things I want you to get from that little section. Number one, even though... Paul spends three years in Damascus ministering faithfully. When he arrives in Jerusalem, he still hasn't outrun the reputation of his past. Three years of faithfully following Jesus, of leading, and yet the believers in Jerusalem still won't even let themselves be around him. What does that tell you about how bad things really were in his pre-Jesus day when he was persecuting Christians and when people left their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, when they stoned Stephen, you remember that story? Like things must have been really bad. And I only bring that up. This is a side sermon. This is not really where we're going today, but it's for somebody specifically and individually. If you're here and you're following Jesus and you feel like no matter how long it's been, you just can't outrun the reputation you had before you started following Jesus, you are in good company when you read the scriptures. Like if you're here and you're like, I, no matter how much I tell my family things have changed, no matter how much I try to commit to this, I simply can't overcome what's known about me in those days where I didn't know Jesus and I was running from him and all of this stuff seems to be holding me back. What I want on your mind right now is what was at stake with whether or not Paul listened to the wrong voices in this moment. If he listens to them going, wait, 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 he's not legitimate. He is a spy. He has come to kill us. He cannot join us. If... He could have withdrawn right then and gone, okay, I'll, I'll go back to Damascus. I understand why they feel that way. And I'll just kind of do my thing over here in the corner of the Greco-Roman world and not worry about being, no, 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 no. You have no idea what's at stake with whether or not you are willing to believe the truth about what God says over you, not what people say over you. When we're singing that song, I am who you say I am, that is more than a fun identity self-help declaration to make you feel better on a Sunday. That is the truth of God that obliterates the lies of the enemy and can deliver you into your destiny and potential in the kingdom of God. We need you to believe the truth. We need you to know you are not who you were before you said yes to Jesus. You are who God says you are washed in the blood, the righteousness of God on full display, and nothing is holding you back from what you are called to step into today. That's just for like one person individually, but watch this. It's not all on you to conjure up the confidence to step into your calling. Paul doesn't yell at them and go, no, I am legitimate. What happens? He has a friend who puts his arm around him. It says Barnabas took him. 
You know what Barnabas' name means? Son of encouragement. And he's like, no, no, no. This is my guy. I saw what he did in Damascus, and I know the encounter he had with Jesus. He is one of us. Here's what I want you to note from that. Never underestimate what one word of encouragement can do to deliver someone into their God-given destiny. Never underestimate the power of words, y'all. There are words on a page that set us free to live for Jesus. How much more should we value the words that we send out to other people that could lift their eyes above their circumstance to the truth about God? And of course, I believe this because of all the love languages, words of affirmation is my number one. It's the one I receive. It's the one that I speak. When I get handwritten notes or text messages or emails that are encouraging, I am just like, come on, Lord, let me bathe in the goodness that is these words. I got a bunch of them this week and I'm bawling my eyes out. But it's unfortunate because whatever one you receive is usually the one you most naturally speak. And Courtney's is not words of affirmation. So I'll send like long text messages. I'll write handwritten notes. That just comes naturally to me. And she's like, yeah, great dishes. Like, cause hers is like acts of service and quality time. And she's like, yeah, we'll talk about how much you love me when that's empty. And when I've had some time with you and then my other um, love language is physical touch. And she has the same response to that one. It's like, once again, dishes before that. And, and it's like, it's a big problem in our marriage. Don't worry. We're getting counseling. And, um, I tell you all that to say this week, I want to challenge our entire church, thousands of people at different locations. What would it look like if you took one random moment to send someone some encouragement that you wouldn't have sent them unless you were sitting in the sermon right now. Like when you sit alone with God, I want this to hit you. Maybe the whole, I trust the Holy Spirit to just remind you in that moment. Send a text that you weren't going to send. Take a moment to say something in passing to somebody and go, hey, I know this is weird, but I just want to tell you, you cannot overestimate how much you could call out in somebody simply by putting words to what's happening in your heart. And maybe those words will become the peace that that person needs in their mind to believe the truth and be set free. Let's be people of encouragement. Now, Paul is running at full speed in the church. People are being converted the Jews are getting more and more angry because nobody can stand up to this guy. He's, he's the perfect balance of knowing the Old Testament scripture so well, but knowing the truth about Jesus and they're baffled. They have nothing to say. Everything's going well. But where I want us to live is what happens in verse 31 as a result of all of this. Go to Acts chapter 9, verse 31. It says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. This is where we're living. Look up at this verse. Study it. Let it hit you. This doesn't happen often in the book of Acts. Luke doesn't stop and go, and then suddenly there was a time of peace and strengthening. I mean, they were rolling. Increasing in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. I want you to see these three phrases side by side. He says they enjoyed a time of peace. In our minds, when we read that, we make assumptions that are not accurate about what peace means. Because when Luke says this, my mind and your mind goes to, oh, things finally calmed down. Like everybody started getting along. I guess the Jews and the Gentiles were, were, were doing well and this is going good and then the gospel's going out and maybe the persecution stopped and nobody's getting imprisoned for their faith and nobody's dying. This is just like a good flourishing time based on external circumstances. We have no evidence that the persecution against the early church ever slowed down in this century. So I would say, and I could be wrong about this, I don't think I am, 
I don't think what Luke was referring to in this verse was external prosperity that led to peace, where it's like, man, they were, money was flowing, people were coming, and everybody was just getting along. When he says peace, he is talking about an inner level of clarity and security where how you're doing is no longer dictated by external circumstances. Where my, my inner state is no longer ruled and dictated by whether or not that goes that way or that way, whether or not this works out or doesn't work out. It's a peace that overcomes the waves of it goes well or it goes poorly. We stay together or we break up. They pass away or they live on. The diagnosis scans are clear or things got worse. Like this is a peace that surpasses understanding. And it exists in the church and I want to preach it into our church. We're finishing year nine, we're going into year 10. I truly believe God has gotten our church to a place of stabilization. Not a stabilization of circumstance. Clearly we got a lot to figure out and things feel all over the place. But a stabilization of knowing what our anchors are. Fear of the Lord and encouragement of the Holy Spirit. What gave the church the ability to live in peace despite what was happening on the outside was that they combined these two seemingly competing realities. And you must learn to do this as well or else your peace will continue to be elusive. What are they? Fear of the Lord and encouragement of the Holy Spirit. Reverent fear for God and relational friendship with God. They seem like they can't coexist, but they actually can. I want to give you a definition for each one of these words so you know what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about fear of the Lord, I'm talking about an increased awareness of God's holiness. And when I'm talking about encouragement of the Holy Spirit, I'm talking about the closeness of God's presence. So we're talking about a state where your relationship with God is not casual. The holiness of God is moving and almost making you tremble. And at the same time, you don't feel like God's your enemy. You know that he's your father and you're drawn near in a relationship marked by love. This is the key to peace. These two realities coexisting in the life of a believer. And I wanna just preach them both one at a time relatively quickly to you to make them totally make sense. Scripture talks about the fear of the Lord over and over and over again, especially in the New Testament. And Solomon writes that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is a verse that you just cannot afford to forget about. How do I get wisdom? How do I think clearly? How do I get a sound mind? Fear God. Now, what we love to do in 2023 is we love to make excuses for the language and go, well, he, when he says fear the Lord, he doesn't mean like be afraid of God. He means like revere God, like believe, be aware of how big he is. Listen, like God is really good at language. If he wanted to say revere the Lord, he would have chosen the word revere. The word fear means fear because fear by nature is meant to be protective, not paralyzing. You know, when you stand at higher elevation and you peek over and you feel in your gut like that, oh, geez, that is very far down. That fear that your brain is firing is intended to preserve your life, not just make you scared. When you're around like a scary situation or an animal like a dog who could have actually hurt you. Sorry, guys, I'm scared of dogs. And, uh, and I'm like, no, I get that fight or flight feeling on the inside. Your body, your mind is telling you, hey, there, there's like danger here. You need to, you need to be careful. That type of feeling around God is healthy. We have gotten way too casual with God as if he's a teddy bear in the sky just wanting to tell us how okay our sin is all the time. God 
way more than he's called love in the Bible, is called holy. In fact, I'll just tell you straight up, God's only called love one time in the Bible. He's called holy hundreds. What does it mean for God to be holy? It means that he's without error and without equal. The fear of the Lord is when you let the holiness of God become something that your senses are aware of. And you feel that, that trembling. You feel that, oh, wow, I, I kind of feel like I might should be careful here. It's what the Israelites felt after Moses gave them the Ten Commandments. You know what nobody talks about with the Ten Commandments? We all put them up on our wall. If you grew up in like a Southern Baptist house, it was somewhere in your house. It was in our bathroom. And, um, and you see the Ten Commandments, but you never see what's written before or after. Before is so cool because God's like, I am the God who brought you out of slavery. In other words, these rules are not meant to enslave you. They're meant to free you for the life you really want. But then right after the Ten Commandments, God starts talking to the people. And the people tell Moses to tell God to stop talking. And they say, Moses, you let him talk to you, but we don't want to hear his voice. Can you imagine if God were audibly talking to us through the roof in this room and y'all were all telling me in this moment, tell him stop. Why, why were they telling him to stop? Because they felt like if he kept talking, they were all going to be obliterated. That's what God's voice sounds like in the presence of sin. Listen to what Moses says. You don't got to turn there. Just let me read it. Exodus twenty twenty. it says, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. This is how little fear and fear of the Lord coexist. Moses is like, no, 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 y'all stop. Don't be afraid. God did this so you would be afraid. Which one is it? No, no, no. Your fear and awareness of who he is is gonna make you think twice about walking your own way. This, this is good. This is healthy for you. This is going to help preserve who you are. He doesn't want you to be afraid of having a relationship with him, but he does want you to be aware of how big and mighty and pure he is. It's, it's letting the purity of God overwhelm you in your sin and letting the vastness of God show you how small you are. It's those two things. It's, I am more sinful than I ever dreamed, and I am so small and seemingly insignificant. But watch this, everybody look up here. Don't miss what I'm about to say. Because of Jesus, the story does not end at fear of the Lord. So if we don't have Jesus in the middle of our Bible, that's the end of the story. You are obliterated by the holiness of God and you are small and insignificant and forgotten. But that feeling finds its health in your life when you couple it with the encouragement of the Spirit. What is the encouragement of the Spirit? It's the beautiful reminder that Isaiah got in Isaiah chapter 6, that even though in the presence of God I should be obliterated because of my sin, there's been a sacrifice to get me here. If you've never read Isaiah 6, it's a small picture of the gospel. Isaiah says, I saw the king. Jesus, high and exalted. And they were singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah says, whoa. Not like, wow, but like W-O-E. Whoa, I don't belong here. 
because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. He is in the presence of God and he's not just blown away with grandeur. He's wrecked by his sin. He's like, I shouldn't be here because I got guilt on my hands and we got a lot of guilt to deal with. And then the seraphim fly over with tongs from the altar. They grab a sacrifice and press it against his mouth. And a voice comes out and says, see, this has touched your lips. Your sin and guilt are atoned for. You are welcome in the presence of God. That is a small artistic picture of an eternal reality that goes, yes, you should fear God. Yes, you should be on your face. Yes, you should feel like your sin is going to obliterate you in the presence of holiness. Yes, you should feel small and insignificant, but thank you, Jesus, your guilt and sin have been atoned for on the cross. That's what you've been given in Jesus. That's what's available to you. And so now all of a sudden I'm I'm like, I was wrecked by how big he is and how sinful I am. And now I'm wrecked by his grace and I'm ruined for living a life less than the life he created me for. Now I can lift my head in relational friendship to God because I know he's not exalted with me bowed waiting to condemn me. He's exalted with me bowed waiting to whisper in my ear all of the reasons why my sin will never keep me from him. What Jesus has done for you invites you into being aware of the majesty of God, but also confident in the presence of God. What does Hebrews say? We enter into the most holy place with confidence. A Hebrew 2,000 years ago would have read that and gone, we enter into the most holy place with confidence. That's where you could die if you're not the high priest. That's what, why would you be confident in there? That's how good the blood is. It, it takes you from, I don't belong here, to, yeah, that's my dad. I want, I want some of you who are visual learners, I want you to see this like in, in some type of a picture way. And I was thinking about how to illustrate this and then the perfect illustration popped up. So a couple weeks ago, we did vacation Bible school here. Over 600 kids came to vacation Bible school, guys. Crazy. You need to be clapping for the leaders who are here because they're still physically recovering from what they went through that week. It was crazy. Uh, but my, my two older daughters were a part of it, and I didn't tell them that I was going to be a part of it. The whole theme was like the Spy Academy, Mission Impossible. We had this tunnel that kind of ran from there into the kids' area. It was so cool. So I didn't tell them that I was going to be a character that was going to pop up on the screen. But someone from our creative team knew that, and so they filmed my middle daughter and how she responded to me popping up on the screen. And her response in real time is the combination of the two realities I'm talking about. So when I popped up on the screen, this is Elliot's face and you'll see her in the middle of this graphic, yep, okay? So every other kid's just watching a video and you see that reaction. I call that face shock and awe. That is like, I did not know this was coming, what is happening? It's almost too much information for her brain in that moment. She is just like, oh, it's dead, oh my, but, 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 but it's like, it's not fully, computing to her. That face, when I say the fear of the Lord, that's the face I want in your mind, that you're looking at God and you're like, whoa, you're way bigger than I thought. And I'm way more sinful than I thought. No, you're you're, kind of overwhelmed by the sight, but then watch what happens right after that. Go ahead and play it through. Do it again, because she's just so, so cute. We got to do it one more time. Okay. So if the first picture was fear of the Lord, that's the encouragement of the Spirit. That's what happens 
when you allow God to take you from just blown away by how big he is to, oh, wow, I have a personal connection to him. Because if you look at her face, she's the only one who's looking at someone on the screen who she lives with. Like she, that's my dad. There's a confidence and a belonging in her countenance that you don't see all around. Those two realities practically in your life can create that level of peace. And God wants you to navigate the circumstances of your life, the details of your career, the future of your family, every little detail about your life. He wants you to navigate it with that type of confidence toward it. Knowing my dad is the God of the universe who created everything and my dad made a way to welcome me into his presence. And as much as I want to just preach this and be excited about it right now, I have to bring this harsh reality in front of us today that the reason why so many of us are trapped in fear and anxiety and loneliness and depression, the reason why we're so paralyzed right now is because we haven't learned to connect fear of the Lord to the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. We do the opposite. We're afraid of everything except for God. And because of that, we're running to comfort everywhere else except for the Holy Spirit, and we're only becoming more empty and alone. And so we're scared of outcomes we can't control, and we're overexposed to so much information through our phones and devices, and we're living just trying to get medicated by all these substances and pills and food and activities that will make our fears go away long enough to survive the day. And it's not bringing inner healing and inner peace. It's only making the void worse. And so if all we do is run in fear of everything else and then respond by looking for comfort everywhere else, it's no surprise that we're in the state that many of us are in right now. So as much as I want this to be an encouraging message of all you got to do is combine this with this and then watch what God does, it's not that simple. Especially when your life is so rooted in doing the opposite of these two things. What I'm saying is for you to live out what I'm putting in front of you today, it will require a change to your daily life. This is not a sermon where you can walk away going, that was nice new information, I hope that changes my life. It will do nothing for you as long as it is information that you are hearing. This will bring transformation when you work it out and you go, I want inner peace bad enough to actually try to live out some of the things he's talking about. The difficult thing about fear of the Lord and encouragement of the Holy Spirit is it's not black and white. Like, oh, if you just go do these five things tomorrow, it'll all work out. There, it's a relational connection with God and it will require effort. So with whatever time I have left, I wanna show you how this could actually practically happen in your life and just beg some of you to stay with me on this because if all you got is God's big and God's my friend and that's gonna make me not anxious, you're gonna be even more anxious. You have to change and replace the rhythms of your thoughts with new rhythms in life. Are y'all still with me? I got two points. Point number one, this one's gonna hurt, but stay with me. You have to learn to create rhythms in your life that increase your awareness of God's holiness. Create rhythms in your life that increase your awareness of God's holiness. This might shock you, but as a sinful human being, you will not wake up naturally in the morning and default to embracing the holiness of God. You don't wake up in the morning and go, wow, I'm just standing in awe of my creator today. It's so great. I'm gonna go make some coffee. No, you, you and I wake up by default and we stand in awe 
of ourselves. And that manifests itself either through self-centered arrogance or self-centered insecurity, but both of those extremes are two sides of the same coin called pride. You will default to making this about you. And fear and anxiety thrive in your life when it's about you. As I make this point, I want to be so, so careful because anytime we talk about mental health and having a sound mind, anytime I use a word like anxiety, I want to be careful because I don't want my response to sound simplistic. Like, well, if you just did this, you wouldn't be so anxious anymore. No, there needs to be counseling involved. For many of you, there needs to be medical advice involved. There needs to be diet things involved. Like so many things to think about across the board, a thousand different ways that could be downloaded in real time. I just think over time, as this area has gone more and more to the forefront of being the battle that exists for people's peace, I think we've gotten really good at ignoring what the Son of God himself said about worry and anxiety. We're willing to counsel anyone and everyone else, willing to look anywhere else for answers. But have you ever thought, like, what did Jesus say about this? Because it's in his most famous sermon, the one that's on our wall in the lobby. You know what he said? It's super helpful. He said, don't worry about anything because that doesn't add anything to your life. And you, you hear that, you're like, that's so helpful. Thank you, Jesus. I'll just work on that. I'll just, I'll just yeah, I'll just not worry. Yeah, I don't know why I didn't think of that. Um, no, when Jesus gives a command, he's, he's a brilliant teacher. You always need to be reminded that he can supernaturally give you the ability to obey the command with his Holy Spirit. And practically speaking, he gives a roadmap for how to live out what he's asking you to do that seems impossible. So what is do not worry paired with? It's paired with something that replaces not worrying. I, I was listening to a mental health expert on, and I'll just be honest with you, it, it makes it sound like I listened to these things. It was on a reel. Um, and it was this woman speaking, not a Christian. And she's like, well, what so many of you are getting wrong about anxiety is you're trying to delete thoughts without replacing them. So you're trying to delete worry, but you have nothing to take its place. And so, but she was, she was trying to say that you need to build yourself up with like self-help and self-esteem uh, validations and stuff. And I'm like, that's so interesting that a, a mental health expert knows you can't just delete the thought. You got to replace the thought. She just doesn't know what you need to replace the thought with. So when Jesus said, don't worry about your life, what did he say you should do instead? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus says, you're so worried, <clears throat> excuse me, you're so worried because you're the king or queen in your story. Your anxiety would evaporate if you'd stop thinking about it centering around you and make it center around me. What an arrogant thing to say if you're not the son of God, by the way. And when people say Jesus is just a good teacher, I'm like, have you heard what he said? He's over here like, yeah, you'll stop freaking out so much when you stop living for yourself and start living for me. I'm the king, my kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given as well. I, I have found a common thread as I've studied and read into what people are struggling with when they're struggling in the life of their mind with fear and anxiety. And I found it in my own life. And this is going to hurt to hear me say this. And I've kind of shied back from saying this in the past because I want to be sensitive when it comes to anxiety and make sure like everybody's covered. I don't want to offend and make somebody feel like their issue is bad. But I've, I've held back in the past. I'm not going to hold back right now. Your fear and anxiety is thriving on the fact that you are so full of yourself. Like you care so much about you 
that that is, Miles, what do you mean by that? And I'm going to turn this against me in just one second, but I'm going to let it hit you for a second. I'm going to say really specific stuff. You're freaking out about your wedding, not because you want to have the perfect wedding. You want to have the perfect wedding so you can prove to everyone something about you or something about your family. You're freaking out about your career, not because you want to live out the fullness of your God-given potential, but so that you can prove to your parents your value and prove to your friends that you've won up them. You want to do the same thing with your appearance. You want to do the same thing with your status. You, everything that you're anxious about, the root is usually, I want to exalt me. Because the opposite of the fear of the Lord is not the fear of man. The opposite of the fear of the Lord is the exaltation of self. And when you realize this, you disarm the one who's really holding the power. And I'll turn this right back against myself. The most anxiety-filled opportunity I have on a weekly basis is to prepare a sermon. Every week, this, what I'm doing right now, fills me with more stress and worry than any other part of my life. And as I've looked under the hood at that, I've realized I don't get worried about preaching to you guys because I'm worried that God's not going to come through. I've seen him do it too many times. He's going to come through. He's going to say what he needs to say and save who he needs to save. Holy Spirit's faithful. It's, it's fine. You know why I get fearful and anxious? Because I care what you think. And if what I want is for you to leave today talking to one another about how great is Miles, man, that was at this point and that illustration, and man, he is a good preacher. I feel that pride well up in my stomach. That's what's making me anxious. But when I let myself get centered on the kingdom and go, wait, what I want when people leave is not that they're talking about me or talking about our church. I want them talking about Jesus and I get out of his way. Now I have the freedom to not do the best job up here, but be faithful to God. And I have the freedom to go home and sleep well and not rethink everything I said, thinking I did a poor job believing lies. What will disarm anxiety is when your life stops being so about you and about your stuff and about your story. And, and so what, what does it mean? It means finding rhythms in your life to join up with the song of heaven. I'm talking about reading and reciting words that have to do with Jesus's kingship. I'm talking about worthy are you, Lord, to receive power and wealth and wisdom. My stuff is not my stuff. My body is not mine. It is a living sacrifice for you. I am yours. And when the fear of the Lord leads you to an awareness of the holiness of God, guess who comes off the throne? You. And then you create the space for someone new to be on the throne. Last thing I'll say about this one. This is what frustrates me. These rhythms will require changes to your life, but they will also look different depending on your personality. So I can't get in front of you and go, here's how holiness is manifested in your life. My personality is different than yours. What I do most of the time is I put my AirPods in and put on some worship music and I walk because I, like, I think better when I'm moving around and I'll just start reading scriptures and I'll start naming out promises of God and I'll start like audibly reciting things that I know to be true about God so that my mind and heart start to be stirred up and it can get a little weird when I'm alone with God. Some of you are so imprisoned to fear and anxiety because you have never ever had the opportunity to get weird alone with God. And I know that sounds like such a strange thing to say, but haven't you tried everything else? You should try out a secret space with God where you're willing to join with the song of heaven. And the thing that's making me so frustrated about giving this talk is I want these things to start to happen in your life, but to create the type of space I'm talking about means deleting something else that so few of you are actually going to do. 
Like you're not, you're not gonna change your schedule for this. You're not gonna change your rhythms for this. You're going to go back to the way things were before. And I'm just here begging you, if you want the life you've always lived, go and do that because that's the result you're gonna get. But if you want something new, maybe get alone with God and go, God, wake me up to the splendor of your majesty through your word, through your creation, through my relationships and help me come off the throne. Jesus, you are worthy. Create rhythms in your life that increase your awareness of God's holiness. That's number one. Number two, then I'm done. This one will be a lot faster. Create reminders in your life that increase your awareness of God's presence. Create reminders. Jesus, the night before he died, he was talking to his disciples and he goes, I have so much more to say to you guys, but I, I, you, you can't even handle it right now. My spirit, the comforter, will come and will remind you of all that I've taught you. The Holy Spirit is a reminder. And primarily, he's a reminder of your identity. Scripture says that when we're sealed with the Spirit, we're sealed for adoption as sons and daughters. Meaning, it's good to be aware of the holiness of God, but don't stop at the fear of the Lord. What's the encouragement of the Holy Spirit? The encouragement of the Holy Spirit is when the manifest presence of God is yours. So yes, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. There's nowhere that you go that God's not there. Okay, we got that in the Psalms. But God is not always sensed. And for you to get to a place where his presence is sensed, you have to give your heart, your mind, and your body the space to receive your sonship once again. If he's speaking identity over you, you're gonna need space to remember it and believe it again. Or you'll believe the very lies of the enemy. What did he lie to Jesus about? If you are the son of God right after the father had affirmed, that's my son with whom I am well pleased. You need space in your life for the Holy Spirit to remind you, you're still mine, I've still got you, you're not dirty, you're not separate, you're not other, you belong in this family and I have such an amazing story for you. The Holy Spirit will comfort you in what you're going through. For some of you, the Holy Spirit will draw near and in the middle of unimaginable pain, you'll be reminded that God's not a sovereign father in heaven going, figure it out, I'm sovereign over everything. He's a father who when you bow at his throne, he leans and grabs your neck and says, I am right here to weep with you. You're mine. And if we're bad at the fear of the Lord, we're even worse at the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. I know we're all over the map emotionally, but when's the last time you bawled your eyes out that you're a son or a daughter of the living God? You want me to answer that? 5 a.m. this morning. It happens a lot. You're like, you're super emotional. You're Italian. Okay, fine. But is there space in your life for God to love on you? Is there space for you to go, so the holy God of the universe is my dad. Just like my daughter goes from, whoa, I didn't, that's my dad. You need that daily from God. And here's the great thing, because of Jesus, it's yours. But you won't create the space for the spirit to remind you. And so you get the turmoil and anxiety that you've chosen to imprison yourself with. The freedom from what you are stuck in is God is God and I am not. And that's not the end of the story. God loves me. 
and I believe it again. And I'll sing about it again, and I'll talk about it again, and my face is radiant like Moses' face because I've been in the presence of God, and he talks to me the way a man talks to his friend. Oh, I want that to be normal in our church. This year, God is going to pour out more of his presence than in any other year in the history of our church. He is. The question is not, will he do that? The question is, will we have space when he does? Will we have jars for the oil? Will we have openness in our schedules and lives to go, God, you matter more. I, yeah, I'm stressed about us having space for people to attend gatherings. You know what I'm more stressed about? I'm more stressed about you can, how most of you can hear a sermon like this and just go back to your life and live out this school year the way you were going to anyway. Please, as we take communion, consecrate this year before God. God, I want this. What does it look like for me? You can get your communion set out right now. If you didn't get one, you can just raise your hand. Someone will bring those elements to you. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you just wanna sit and reflect in this moment. But if you are, this is where we remember the body and the blood of Jesus. And you can come forward to our communion stations if you wanna kneel. Uh, back row, they're gonna get to you, I promise. Someone's gonna make their way up there. You just gotta take your time. Keep lifting your hand, they'll see you. Husbands, pray over your wives, but let's take time and digest what we have heard before we sing and before we spread out over this year. I trust the Holy Spirit to download this in real time, but y'all enjoy. This is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Jesus shed for you. Remember his sacrifice and let's watch what God does.